in New York City, if you walk into the Kenyan embassy or the English okay. embassy, or the you're you're not on American territory, you're not on American soil anymore. So so their rules apply, not your rules. And the same thing is true when you walk into a church. You're you're walking into the place where Jesus rules. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I am here as usual with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church on Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Wonderful. Yeah, doing great, Nick. Thanks. So this is our 150th episode. Are you guys were you guys prepared for the level of fame and fortune we've achieved? <laughs> no, it's really um, it's, it's been a whirlwind. That's right. It's hard. I mean, there's so many people to thank. And, you know, just so many people as, as we've made I'm this not, meteoric rise. I'm not ready for my close up yet, but it is. <laughs> it was May 16th, 2020, when we did the first one. Gosh, like. COVID was really fresh and that was almost three years ago to the week. Yeah. I, I see. We I remember look- doing that. We were walking. I was like out on our like COVID second of our three walks a day that we took yeah. around our neighborhood because we didn't have anything else to do. And I think that's where we, uh, we said we were recognizing the Matt Kennedy said strong things on the internet. <laughs> but see, we don't have any way to check our stats though. So we might like have you know, 10 listeners who all comment on our, well, we, I, I've, been operating, I've been operating as though we just have the one. Yeah, okay. See, we, have at least right. 10, right. we have at least 10 emails from different people, so there's at least 10 okay, people 10. out there. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, I'm not too worried about it, though. It's been, it's more, the whole reason we started in the first place was to have some sort of intellectual exercise of just trying to figure out what we thought about things. Yeah. You know, that was a very confusing time, if you remember, and when to be an Anglican and to be a human. You know, because that was when all the the race stuff and the masks and the vaccines and, you know, I didn't know what to make of all I that. I think we either. talked about George Floyd on our third episode when it, the week it happened. So it was, yeah, wow. r- real fresh. Well, guys, things are, you know, we still have to think through things. We, we usually on this show uh, talk about either some theological issue or some news story that involves a theological issue. Today, we wanted to have a conversation about something super practical and pastoral, uh, the pastoral care and even potential discipline of trans identified people in church. Now, my wife works in healthcare, and she has seen in recent months a significant uptick in trans-identifying patients. And I'm sure that's going to start, if it's not already, being the case across the board, including in churches, even, I think, in quote-unquote conservative churches. Indeed, young people in conservative churches are some of the most likely to rebel, and there's no rebellion quite like rebelling against the very body into which you were born. So, guys, how do we prepare and help parents with this issue if it presents itself at the door of our churches how far do we go do we for instance care about how people who come to church dress what do you do and say if a person who is clearly presenting as their non-biological sex shows up on a sunday morning i think it's it goes of course deeper than the trans the particular trans uh issue the, the the redefinition, you know, Carl Truman gets to this, the redefinition of the self that our whole culture has bought into, that that uh, you are identified by what is within, um, and then everything else outside of you has to conform to that. I think, I mean, that's that's a major paradigmatic 
shift in thinking. If, 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 if we can educate our congregations to recognize that false gospel, the gospel of self, uh, versus the actual gospel, I think that's a huge, that in itself will be a huge step toward preparing our congregations for this kind of thing and parents for this kind of thing. And they'll be able to hear, you know, this is this particular kind of language that, that uh, is used in our public schools and in corporations and in, uh, in the media. It's all that all uh, stems from that, that idea of, of the self, your own authentic self being the, the thing you have to identify with and, and, and live out. But if, they, if people are just trained to hear that and then taught how to, how that's different from what the Christian faith teaches, Christianity teaches, I, I think we can help kind of inoculate people to it. I, I, you guys know, we've been going through Carl Truman's uh, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self and about Christian Ed for about 40 weeks now. <laughs> it's been a long time. But I don't regret I me. Mean, people say, don't you think it's gone too long? No, I don't. No, I don't think it's gone too long. I think we need to, I don't apologize. I think it's important <laughs> to go through uh, this book chapter by chapter and read as much of it as you can to your people. It's one of the more important books, I think, that was, has been published in the last 10 years, 15 years, maybe, for understanding the times we live in and for helping Christians navigate the particularly philosophical and psychological and emotional and spiritual issues that are <clears throat> uh, that are being presented. Um, so I think that's the one thing, just just edu- just seeing that it's not just the problem is not just people saying I'm a girl when they're really a boy or I'm a boy when really a girl. It goes down to the very core of, that's right. of anthropology. Like, what, what, who are you as a human being? Um, do you define you or are you defined by God who has made you and, and crafted you in your mother's womb? And then if, if the if the latter is the case, then that has implications for how we engage with and deal with uh, what we're being told in school and in, and in corporations. We this I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet at Good Shepherd, but we have not had someone come and say, I'm, I'm a man who's really a woman or I'm a woman who's really a man. Um, we we have said our, our diocese, I helped write the policy. Our diocese has a policy that uh, that says we as pastors cannot use uh, pronouns that are in conflict with a person's biological sex. And we cannot use a name that is you know, consistent with that idea, especially not in sacraments or liturgy. So, so there, there, you know, maybe, you know, maybe like when someone just meets, when you just meet somebody, maybe you can just not make it an issue. But the emphasis of the policy is we are people of the truth and we don't, we don't facilitate lies. Um, we want to do it in a way that is compassionate and loving, but at the same time, our first allegiance is to God and his His created order. And so we can't betray that and him in order to placate the great lie that's taken our society um, by storm. That's right. I, I agree with that. I think it's... Uh, um... We haven't. I haven't personally had to um, deal with that uh, yet. Uh, although, like Nick said, I would, won't be surprised if and when. But I have. I have other ministers who have, and they've taken similar positions, like the one you outlined, Matt. And I think that from a from as where I am now, we're almost an entirely like preventative preparation equipping stage. You know, with parents of young children, like I have young children. You know, even with them, you know, beginning to emphasize in a way that you never would have 
thought you would have to. The goodness of God's creative design for boys and girls and, you know, really raising them with an awareness of these things, knowing that, you know, as much as we want to protect them, eventually, you know, hopefully at the age appropriate time, they will be made aware of the fact that there's this giant disagreement out there in the world. And they will not only, they will be prepared, but then by the people under our care will have some similarly been been prepared. I did walk through a, a, with a family at a, 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 a church with a with an adult child who was in the process of wrestling with um, their identity. And there was a real eye-opening experience for me, which was how, um, how complicit the school system was in sort of undermining the, the whatever authority the parents thought they had, because there was the argument was really between the administrators and the parents as to whether or not, which of course we hear about, but I walked through it firsthand um, and had to assure the parents that they were in fact, this was in fact loving and they were being accused of being unloving and, you know, doing harm because they were refusing to, um, to buy into this delusion. And that was a real eye-opening experience for me. And that was years ago now. I mean, that was nothing compared to what probably in some, some communities people are dealing with at the moment. Um, but I think you're exactly right, Matt. The preventative preparation and equipping for the eventuality of being confronted with this is, is uh, I think, the a pastor's, this day and age, uh, number one priority. It's the same way over the years we have had to prepare families to deal with death, that you, you can't deal with a tragedy in your life if you've never considered it until it happened. You, you have to be prepared over a lifetime of right. faithfulness to then respond. So talk to me, you guys, about grace. Now, we stand up in our pulpits every Sunday and talk about the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And I remember in 2003, for instance, when Gene Robinson was consecrated in New Hampshire and Episcopal clergy tried to speak out the truth congregations across our land with the, hey, wait, what about grace? I thought you said God in Jesus Christ was all about grace. So what's where's the intersection between standing up for the truth and proclaiming the grace of God in Christ? Well, but grace is you... a disposition, though. I mean, grace is a is a merciful disposition to 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 sinners. I mean, it's a it's a and so to to be graceful is to withhold judgment or withhold, I mean, uh, punishment by through faith. I mean, we in faith impute, uh, we we get the imputed righteousness of Jesus to us by faith. You know, through grace, you've been saved. And so the the when people say, "What about grace?" What they mean, I'm happy to extend grace because I'm not looking to further punish um, wrongdoers. But to add to but to ignore the wrongdoing is not a graceful disposition that would be a indifferent disposition you know but a graceful one actually presupposes the need for mercy you know you don't need grace if you haven't done anything wrong i mean correct me if i'm wrong Matt. i mean this is but this is what i but but i i get frustrated because i i have had conversations even recently with people who say well you used to be well you essentially used to be more graceful than you see mm -hmm. these days you know like you used i thought you were all about grace yeah. i said well I was always about always about the law and the gospel, which cannot be or which which are always distinguished, but never never uh, fully divided. If that's what you mean, well, then yes, I'm still about grace. But I don't think I think we have a misunderstanding of what either you I, either what I was saying or what you heard. In any case, it's clear now. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think, Matt? No, I think you're right. I think I think 
the it's, it's very similar to people saying, well, I thought you were about love or I thought you were about um, compassion or I thought you were about gentle. Yes, of course. But, but the problem is it's, it's like saying, you know, it's like if you, if you're a doctor and you discover that the, your patient it has cancer, right. And you go in and you tell the patient you have cancer. So we need to fix this. Um, you're actually loving your patient at that point. If you were to go into your patient and say, Hey, you know what? Hey, I saw some things in the scan, but you know, don't worry, don't worry about it. You're good. You know, I'm a gracious doctor. So um, I, I love all of you, even uh, even the parts that could kill you, but I love you. So we're not going to deal with that. That's that's not grace. That's, that's uh, you said indifference, but I think it's actually hatred um, because you're, yeah. uh, you're, you're allowing, you're allowing what is going to kill a person to, to metastasize. And what's going to kill the person in this case is self-worship. That's that's what this whole thing is about. It's a trans right. issue. Goes back back down to the core of it is, this is how I feel. This is who I am, and I am going to. I'm going to. I'm everybody else in the whole world needs to conform themselves to me. That's cancer. That's cancer. It's spiritual cancer. Yeah, and when it and comes we as to pastors, have to say, we love you. And the reason, and because we love you, and because God is gracious to you, He's revealing to you right now that you're living in a lie, and it's going to kill you. That's right. You need to repent and trust in Jesus, who can forgive your sins and cover you. And, and then comes the grace and the mercy and kindness. That's right. And and we need to be. It, it's, I mean, it always comes back to the same issue: is whether or not the Bible is clear about the things that are put our souls in jeopardy and actually are detrimental and destructive to our to our souls and our bodies. Um, and in this case, we're talking about sexual sin, or we're talking about well, we're talking about uh, the whole the whole sort of LGBTQ array here. Right. Um, and the question is, you know, is this is this something that as as a good pastor would warn you against and call out as just you said, Matt, is something that is destructive and 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 wrong and sinful, or is are we indifferent to it, or are we um, do we not actually believe that? that God has spoken in these areas. Because if you substituted, as we always say, some other clear sin, you know, murder, theft, adultery, into the place where people want to be shown grace in this area, which in, is in, in the parlance just means to turn a, you know, turn a blind eye to it, well, then you can see how ridiculous it is, unless you are actually making the argument that it's not as big of a deal, you know? So it's really not this, in this area, you know, my my child is presenting this way, is engaging in these activities. And, you know, in order to be loving, I'm going to not point that out in any sort of uh, seemingly judgmental way. Well, just substitute some other sin that you think is actually destructive. And you can see how quickly you've just changed. What's actually happened is people have changed their minds on whether or not these type sins are actually warrant uh, sort of judgment or, or, or are bringing about harm or or um, destruction of people's bodies and souls. And, and I think that's really the lies at the heart is that, you know, when you decide that these are, are issues that you should quote unquote show grace about, well, what you're really saying is that you don't think that they're, they're worthy of judgment because, because we're more than happy to show grace. It's just that grace comes after the, the judgment has been, has been revealed. You know, we, we said that the, the Lord has been able to forgive any and all sin, but it has to first be called for what it is, which is a sin. There's an interesting, I think, connection here between the modern therapeutic need and the the urge to 
shield everyone from any sort of harm because I th- and I th- think this is seen most clearly in the idea that we've talked about before. And I think that um, Matt has specifically written about before, which is when somebody is presented with a family member who falls prey to one of these ideologies, their resolve can crumble. And I think that's can be true of not just family members too. Anytime you have somebody in front of your face who you have to call a sinner, that's a very different thing than writing some article out into the ether about what sin is. And I don't know if it's a modern thing or if it's always been a problem, but we are so we've decided what hurt is. And as we talked about a, a few weeks ago, we have a completely temporal perspective on hurt. We are unwilling to hurt somebody today and thereby we endanger their soul eternally. And we are unwilling to hurt somebody today to potentially save their soul eternally. That's right. Well, that's where, you know, back to the training, you know, the the first person that you need to have a strong face-to-face conversation with about being a sinner is yourself. You know, I mean, you need to start like trying that on, like right in the, you know, in the mirror. And then, you know, if you, if you're married, then you need to have, you know, you need to have a, so a real conversation with your neighbor that you live with um, about uh, areas of your own failing, you know, and be quick to confess and quick to forgive. And that begins the training process, even in your own heart for the conversations that, you know, good pastors, and then obviously the parents will end up having with their children, which is the the genuine ability to communicate a, a seemingly contradictory reality that to the world, it seems contradictory, that, that love can come in the form of, of judgment, you know, and that's, that is true. If there is no forgiveness in the light, in light of the judgment, I mean, if God only spoke the law, well, then we wouldn't have anything to celebrate, but thank God, you know, he says, neither do I condemn you to the woman called adultery. So it's like, she's clearly been judged, but he doesn't, but the condemnation that he has taken on himself. And if we can, we can grasp these two concepts personally in our own lives. Well, first of all, we'll, we'll be more aware of the joy of our salvation. But then secondly, we might have some hope in communicating through tears to people we are given to shepherd, um, you know, beginning with our neighbors, our families, and then by extension, if we're pastors, the people that we've been given um, responsibility to lovingly shepherd. And sometimes the shepherd has to, you know, use the crook um, and use the hook. And, you know, we do that with, with, with the sense of responsibility before the Lord, but certainly with no joy, except for the joy of knowing what redemption and healing can come through the mercies of God in Christ. I, mean, I agree with everything you're saying, and I agree with everything that Nick, Nick said about this, and um, the, the the condition, the way people hear what we what we say. Um, at the same time, you know, I I think that this, for some reason, this particular sin area has taken on so much emotional and cultural baggage that pastors are so are, are become afraid and reticent and, and, and so Vody Bauckham talks about this I think I mentioned it in many earlier podcasts but Vody Bauckham says you know what if I began a sermon by saying yeah. you know I I just I, you know if you if you beat your wife I just want you to know I love you I, I, I and I, I want you to hear that that we love you we accept you you're you're welcome here if you beat your wife we but but you know what it 
we do think it's a sin. <laughs> Nobody would say that if you if you if you're counseling a wife beater, you might say, I hope you would say, you know, I, I love you, but but you would be much less reticent to say, hey, what you're doing is illegal and and it's and you're hurting your wife, you're hurting your children, and I'm if you don't stop, I'm gonna call the police, or actually I'm gonna call the police anyway, and you are endangering your soul right now. And there'd be no I don't think I hope no pastor would have any qualms about about confronting well, that's, somebody, that's, that's but, what I was getting right. to in my previous unclear yeah. point that I was making that you know that, that the real issue here is that people have decided that it's not yes yeah. it's, it's frankly not a sin I mean I think that's just you know because I have a whole book but even those who I are think, talking against it though right right but that's have, what I'm have, saying I don't though. see how deeply the, the sinful the sin is right? but I would question whether or not those people actually at, at the you know if you if you woke them up at three in the morning or if, if they were unmiked or unguarded if they would actually really agree i mean i think right. that's what's begging the question precisely to that point because these are the same men who have no problem calling out um other things that they think sin like for instance beating anyone much less your wife you know i think right, there would be sure. they have any problem at all and so what is the problem with you speaking something similarly clear about that issue other this issue other than the fact that you seem to be wavering on the conviction as to whether or not it is in fact sinful you know i have this book that was edited by david gushy i think who you know, was the editor of Christianity Today who changed his mind. And it's a it's a whole list of people who have changed their minds on this sort of whole LGBTQ, you know, array. And it's the same story every single time. You know, I had a friend or I had a kid. I had a friend right. or I had a kid. And it turns out they're really nice people. And so I must have been wrong. And so my rejoinder to them <laughs> has always been like, did you did you never know anyone that was part of these ideologies before? Have you never met? I mean, did you have this sort of terrible conception of of you know LGBTQ people? So yeah. that it took on what so was it, your previous position? That's raised. right. I'm like I'm like you know it's like and and so I, that was always my question is because like if you have really thought that categorically anyone that was caught up in the LGBTQ plus world was just this, the, the worst human being that could, that could ever have existed. Well, then, well, you were wrong there. You know, let's just start there because no one is making that argument. Yeah. What we're saying is that people are caught up in sin and this is a particular type sin. It's not the only sin, but it still is. And so that's what we're saying. And so I think I know a lot of sinners, myself included, who are a mixed bag on any given day of saint and sinner. And so, you know, I'm not surprised that there are people um, of all sorts of different um, temperaments involved in all sorts of things that they shouldn't be. And so anyway, it's it's a phenomenon. You're exactly right, Matt, that is um, that it's increasing. It's not decreasing among Christian pastors. And I think, you know, we need to be um, lovingly encouraging to those people that at least would listen to us that you're not doing anyone any good by whispering about this this particular sin, particularly as we see the levels rising amongst the coming generations of people who are simply crying out that they're confused about their sort of bodies in all sorts of different ways that manifest in LGBTQ plus down the line. And we of all people are the ones who have to have the courage to, to speak clearly and forthrightly about this um, for the sake of their souls. I can envision people who come to church in outfits that we would find inappropriate. I can think of, Potentially a woman who came in a bikini or a man who came in a, you know, Hitler costume or something. What do we do if somebody comes, obviously clothing 
mores change here and there. But if if somebody comes seemingly actively presenting as the gender they are not, what what is the response of a faithful minister in church? Yeah, so <laughs> interesting. We had that we had a big fight at the Shepherd about six or seven years ago about dress and whether or not uh, men should be wearing suits or ties. And we actually lost a few parishioners over this because I said, well, I'm not going to, you know, that's fine. But, but, and the, the argument was from the other side, well, that's, you know, the Bible says to be reverent. And reverence, I guess, necessarily means wearing a tie. <laughs> like in the first century. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Uh, so, so, yeah. I mean, would, a bolo, would a bolo constitute? Is that, <laughs> right. So people get very... I'm, I'm all in. I'm all in if that's the case. <laughs> so or, people get or, very, very, um, very legalistic about, about what you wear. And 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 we don't we don't want to do that. But uh, but there are ways, there are ways of, token ways of symbolizing open rebellion against God. Um, so, uh, and again, another example, a few years back, there was this, um, there was this movement of, of, of people who are pro- doing the, the pro- promoting the LGBTQ movement, and they were wearing rainbow s- sashes to various churches, to Roman Catholic churches. And some of the Roman Catholic priests in our area said, well, if you show up with your sash, you're not going to get communion because you're, that's, that's an open, you're telling us that you're rebelling against God. So I kind of think this falls in that same category that if someone if someone comes and it's clearly a man dresses a woman or vice versa, but it's usually going to be a man dresses a woman, then you, I don't I could I personally speaking could not give that person communion for for the sake of that person's life. I don't I don't want that person to drop dead um, or get sick. So so I would have to either either talk to that person, you know, take that person aside and say, hey, look, uh, you need to repent of this. And one way you can repent of that is you know, to change your clothes, or I can't give you communion, or I just have to deny him at the in the line. Um, I, I just I couldn't, in good conscience, give that person communion. And we would want such a person to come to church. We open yep. the doors of worship to anybody. It's the t- table that is fenced. But what about subsequent weeks? Would you say that if this is an ongoing public proclamation? Yeah. In the same way that I can't let you wear your bikini to church every week because it's inappropriate to worship, I can't let you wear this outfit to to church either. Right. I mean, the, the, the you know, very large man, very fat, large man with a thong, you know, doesn't get to you know, come to church every Sunday, right? Yeah. Say, change your clothes. I mean, I, I, reverence yes, is you're one really, thing. You're not going to have anyone coming to your church pretty <laughs> right. soon. Uh, you make all these incredibly draconian rules. rules. <laughs> all these rules. <laughs> oh, <my gosh. laughs> So, so yeah, you, you, I mean, I think, I think you have the, you have the children of the church to worry about. I mean, you, you, how confusing is that for your kids who are there? You have again, the open display of rebellion. So I, we do want people to hear the gospel and to be, and to be um, fed by it, but there is a way of making a proclamation by what you wear. And you say, like you said, Nick, so it's, it's one thing to have a, a person under discipline come and sit and listen to the sermon. It's another person to have a person under discipline come and you know, wear some kind of you know, broadcast what he's doing as a sign of defiance and listen to the sermon. That's, that's a different thing altogether. And I think you have to then police your boundaries and say, you can't, this, pro, you're, are you, this, but this property is off, is off limits for you until you can dress an appropriate, inappropriate way. And I think we can draw parallels to much less obviously scandalous things. Like if a man or woman 
came in your front door and stood in the narthex and like ostentatiously took their wedding ring off every Sunday. Like I'm going to have a conversation with that person. Like we need to know what it is you're trying to proclaim by this action that you can hear you're doing in front of everybody. Yeah. I think, I think that, um, yeah, I, the church, I think one problem with that is that people, I think just tend to think the church is some kind of, venue where we're all kind of getting together and expressing ourselves in worship when in fact you walk into the church you're walking into the outpost of the kingdom of god and so it's his it's like when you walk into uh, someone uh, the in new york city if you walk into the kenyan embassy or the english embassy or the you're you're not on american territory you're not on american soil anymore so so their rules apply not your rules and the same thing is true when you walk into a church. You're, you're walking into the place where Jesus rules. So you don't get to decide what the laws are. You don't get to decide what the rules are. You you, you submit to what he has revealed, or, or you don't come in. That doesn't, we, have, we, have, we have to guard the borders. Yeah, I think, I mean, I agree with all that. And I, I love that analogy, too, with the embassy, um, the embassies of heaven, you know, the outposts of the kingdom. Um, but I think, you know, it extends for the Christian, and this would be a challenge, I know, for people, particularly, well, you mentioned, like, uh, Aya, your wife, Nick, you know, out in the the world, dealing with people that are presenting this way. You know, I, I would argue that for the Christian, it is a, well, you're lying, first of all, when you when you embrace this. And you, every time we lie, part of our soul is, is weakened. I mean, like, we, you know, it's like, well, we talk about Rod Dreher's book, Live Not By Lies All The Time. But, you know, I think that there's a real there's a real challenge out there. Now, you know, I understand that, that it's complicated and I, as a pastor, you know, have some responsibilities and then freedoms that are not afforded to um, all of the, you know, people working at Amazon and on the line or whatever people, you know, we're about to approach the high Holy month of pride month. Uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of people that are going to be compromised in, in many ways. And I think to help people, Christian people think through this of like what we're trying to do today in part is going to be more and more important because Obviously, one off saying someone's name, using pronouns, doing these things to get by, you know, to not get fired or something. I mean, I don't know if it's it's that obvious, but I mean, that's there's some grace there. You know, as I always say to people, not every Christian in the first two or three centuries was martyred. You know, not everyone, you know, so there were some that pinched to Caesar and I'm sure that they repented or I hope they did. You know, it was a whole Donatist controversy type thing like this is the there's those complicated realities that people are facing. But I do know that fundamentally we are called to be people of the truth. Christians are. And if we're not able to and strong enough to to lovingly and with all humility say we're not going to participate in this this demonic lie, well then who is? You know, because if we don't if we don't do it, who will? And so, you know, talking to your congregation, I don't know how you equip your people, but but I think that's going to be a very complicated and very um poignant question that's going to be faced by more and more people um as we as we see more and more of this this sort of trans ideology take take um, root in people's lives. It sounds like on week one, we'd have a lot of latitude. We'd be maybe not at the communion rail, but in terms of not necessarily throwing somebody out of the church, we would we would want to be as welcoming as we could possibly be. We'd also want to make one. sure that you were right. You know, you weren't just miss. Right. <laughs> someone just didn't, didn't sort of oh i thought you were a man something, but, uh, you, you really are a woman <laughs> that's my a wife <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so sorry. I mean, you know, stranger yeah. things have happened. Um, right. Well, I think it's true. We you know, get over time. The first Sunday would need to be uh, a little more open. And then over time, if this is a continuing consistent thing, we need to, to, to draw in um, some boundaries pretty quickly, I think. So, but, I think, but but what do you can what do you tell your parishioners like for instance you know what it's like the it's like jack whatever the cake baker's name is you know like he refuses to make these cakes you know i think that there are a lot of christian bakers analogously whether they're bakers or not who are making the cakes all over the country and my argument to them is that one you know you think it's a zero sum that it's you that it's it's not hurting you you know that but that's not true like every time you participate in this lie you're actually wounding yourself now i don't want to say you're you're it's a it's a mortal final wound you know right. i don't think that uh so but but i do think you should at least consider ways to speak the truth you know in in appropriate ways at appropriate times particularly with those people that you're given um, some influence over. You know, if you have someone in your family that's transitioning or you have a, you know, particularly if your own children, you begin to equipping them. But if there's someone that actually is is in your orbit that you have in any way the ability to witness to about the Lord, um, well, this is in part that witness. Like, here's right. why I cannot participate in this. I, it's because I love you and I love the Lord that he has revealed the truth about who men and women are. And, and I'm not going to participate in, in a false, you know, falsehood here. And, and even if a, they that's... walk away from you in a rage, that may be the planted seed that blooms later for their that's repentance right. and conversion. Well, I'll never forget this. And I don't know it's the Lord's providence, but I baptized a woman who's a little bit younger than I am at a church in Vienna who had spent six years running from the church because she was so upset about having been denied the ability to be a godparent because she wasn't a Christian. And, and how dare yes. that priest, how dare him, you know, do this? And well, what's this all about anyway? If it meant so much that she couldn't be a godparent, and lo and behold, six years later, you know, after sort of wrestling with it, she came and got baptized. And now I'm, we've fallen out of touch, but but I certainly remember the baptism. I mean, because I did it. So, you know, we're like, so that, to your point, Nick, you know, happens. It does happen. People... People sit up and they, if they get upset, but they still, in the Lord's providence at times, consider well, what was the big deal about this in the first place? Why was it worth you harming our friendship? What, what's what's so important about it? And people will ask this question. Um, and, and, you know, we may not be the ones who see the resolution, but, but uh, we do pray and hope that there will be one. I, you know, I also think there's a, there's a, a lot of selfishness and hidden selfishness you know, cloaked under the mantle of gentleness and compassion and affirmation because you know, it, it's not comfortable to say that something's wrong, right? It, 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 even if you know that it's right for the other person to know the truth, it hurts. It, it hurts you because you could break the relationship with that person. You could have, especially if it's a family member, you could have a family member who just won't talk to you anymore. So you might say, well, I, I don't want to end this relationship or I want to keep this prisoner or I want to keep this family in my church. You may not say that explicitly to yourself, but that's what really what the motive is. It's because you want to keep these people connected to yourself. And so you're not going to risk the truth, whereas the truth is really the loving thing to do. So it's it's a a lot of the love language and the compassion language, I think, is really just a, a, a disguise and a, a self-deluding way of lying to ourselves 
because we really are selfish and we would rather have this person not leave our church and continue to be there or not leave our family, not leave our, not in the relationship with me or whatever. Um, so, so we're not willing to give, I mean, we're not willing to give up the closeness that we may have experienced before for the other person's good, but love is always giving of yourself for the good of the other. And often I think it's even a shade more selfish than that. It's just, not wanting somebody else to think poorly of me. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, I think that's where it gets back to the the whole conversation we've been having about awareness of sin in your own life. You know, the the you know not to flinch or not to turn away from the consequences of sin in your own life. You know, and not to sort of dismiss those and and really really have a sense of you know the exceeding sinfulness of sin you know as, as the puritans would say and and as a result of that then the joy of the redemption through forgiveness and mercy and that becomes the the baseline confidence that you have to actually preach law and gospel it's like listen this is bad news they believe me i know if anyone knows i know you know I'm into, uh, this is a true saying though and worthy of all men to be received that christ jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom i am the foremost you know you can say that with paul and that is the conviction that allows you to hold the, the you know, the, the, the screaming toddler who's beating you, you know, on your chest saying, you don't love me anymore. I hate you, daddy. You know, it's the one it's that's the gives you the confidence to say, listen, I know you don't understand this, but this is this is the love of God shown to the world that was is not allowing us to to participate in this in this lie. And we're just not going to. And I think that's you know, parents don't have, need to be, that conviction needs to be formed, you know, it needs to be strengthened and it needs to be reiterated. I mean, I'm talking to myself here, you know, because the prospect of alienating one of your children in particular from you over anything is, is heartbreaking to consider, you know, and we've all seen it. I mean, and yet Jesus promised that that in part would be some result of his ministry in the world, you know, mother against mother-in-law, I mean, I mean, daughter and son against father. And, and we don't revel in that, but we we do expect at the very least initially something of that happen when the conviction is brought and we pray and we we implore and we through tears walk with people in the hopes that the the real uh, reconciliation will be found and of course if we hadn't seen it we wouldn't believe it but i i mean i know people in my congregation you have people too who have come through uh relational difficulties we should say that were seemingly impossible to overcome and yet in god's timing Hearts were softened, eyes were open, ears were unstopped, and now there's um, a, a sort of a wholeness and a a relationship that that seemed to have been out of the question in many cases um, on account of people's persistence with not letting go of what the Lord has actually said. Um, and so that's that's just the conviction that that we have that we're offering in, in the midst of all of this confusion. I'm I'm really glad you brought up the personal repentance part of the, in this because. That helps us understand what people are going through. I mean, the, the, I mean, you, I know, I have. I, I remember in particular a, a sin that was in my life for many years, and it took a long, so long, uh, and every, having to wake up every morning and confess the same thing, like <laughs> I did this again, Lord, and just feeling like this is never going to go away, and then the, and, the, and the, the temptation in that moment to say, well, I should just. I should just accept this as part of who I am, or I, you know, this is so painful to have to confess this every day. I should just let it go. That temptation is so real for people, and and so if you and if you have someone whispering into your ear, or, or actually society with a loud horn, you know, blasting in your ear, 
this thing is good. This thing is great. This thing is, you know, embrace this thing. It's so hard to keep the, the repentance in, in the forefront sure. of your, of your heart and mind. So, and that's really what the church is supposed to do for people is to help them. Amen. Yeah. You, you, okay. Listen, you, you listen to the Lord and, and he loves you and you can sin every day and confess every morning and, and he'll forgive you because he doesn't just forgive three times. He forgives seven times, 70 times or however many times Amen. forever. Right. He just keeps doing it. So you, and that's how he sanctifies you. That's how he makes, makes you whole. So even if you feel like this is the only way you can ever live ever, you know, possibly you'll never possibly change. You just keep going to the Lord and keep Amen. confessing that. And he's going to help you and forgive you. Yeah. I tell people all the time that I was like, we are the people, you know, I have a, hypothetical question I ask every uh, like sermon every six months or so. And I say like, what do you like, just for a minute, tell me what do you think is actually wrong with you? You know, like just, just, you don't have to say it out loud, but just tell me what you think <laughs> is wrong. And I said, if you weren't a Christian or you didn't have the Bible, where would you get this information? You know, would you think anything was wrong with you? You know, probably not. You would just say, well, the society is wrong with me or education was wrong or I, you know, I didn't have too much or I had too little or my mom, you know, sort of like psychoanalysts, um, you know, on steroids there. And I said, but we are the people who actually have the diagnosis. Like it's the true and good diagnosis. Now it's painful and it's persistent and it certainly cuts, you know, and I can speak as someone who has my fair share of self-inflicted wounds on account of sin. And yet here we are once again, celebrating the joy of our salvation precisely because we have not only been rightly diagnosed, but we have been rightly forgiven. And so that's the that's the persistence of our the foolishness of what we preach paul says of the cross to you know anyone on the spectrum of any sin much less lgbtqia dpi whatever is that we will walk with you we will pray with you we will you know forgive you every morning you know give absolution every single time it's needed but we cannot let go of this diagnosis that will bring you to your knees because then we've lost we've lost we've lost it all you know, and I think that's the message, the counterintuitive message that the outside unbelieving world looks at in our church. And just, well, frankly, that's the rejection of it. They say that cannot be good news, what you're talking about in there about death and cross and sin. And you have to kneel so much and look at those Ten Commandments and all these laws and strictures, you know, that cannot be good news. And yet here we are proclaiming, like with Paul, uh, the foolishness to the Greeks and the stumbling block to the Jews, but the power of our salvation is the fact that we have been rightly judged in the cross through the law, but not condemned. And that's that's an amazing thing to get to tell the world. And I think the pastors that are losing their conviction in this the specific area that their sheep are being attacked need to need to repent themselves and reconsider um, their calling, you know, because, you know, if, if you're not dealing with equipping people to confess rightly uh, their disordered uh, identity ideologies and however they manifest, well, then um, you are failing at the very point at which the devil is attacking our uh, most weak and vulnerable, you know, particularly the young um, at this very moment. And so, you know, I need encouragement to stay firm, like, and, and I know you all do too. And that's in part what we're, um, we're attempting to communicate to our at least 10 listeners, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> at least the 10. Well, we pray for each other's churches. We pray for your churches, that they would be places of repentance and law proclamation, but then also places of joyful celebration and the proclamation of the good news in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness and redemption is a hand for all who turn to him and believe. 
Thank you for listening to Stand Firm this week. You can uh, keep the conversation going with us by being in touch. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes or send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com. You can even join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Mm-hmm.